This week's episode is brought to you by BitRise. BitRise is a continuous integration and delivery service for your mobile apps. They support building, testing, and deploying for iOS, Android, Xamarin, or any hybrid platform. They have more than 170 open source integrations, which can be used to customize your workflows for different scenarios, and even have a CLI to run those same exact workflows locally to reproduce and debug errors, or just experiment. So head to bitrise.io to learn more and sign up today. Frank, you know, you know, I love to talk about little machine learning, little AI. It seems to be the buzz of every conference. Seems you know. like every week you want to talk about it. I have to hold you back. I'm like, James, we can't talk about AI and machine learning every week. Well, we have to talk about AI and machine learning every week because we know that you love it. You know that I don't understand any of it uh, at all. I think what is so intriguing about it is there's not a company today that is not trying to get into this area, but yeah. also there's not one of the big three that aren't talking about it. Apple's right. talking about it. Google's talking about it. Microsoft's talking about it. seems <laughs> that it's what everyone is talking about all the time. And then I always look to myself and I'm like, hmm, should I really understand this? Because, you know, Heather, she was an R developer, came from a data oh, analytics know. background, like she's a math major. Okay. And whenever she does R development, it always like blows my mind. And I was just like, I don't know what you're doing. She, under she understands all this. I'm like, again, this is why I date you because you're way smarter than me and understand all this stuff. But it's always of interest to me because I like to take the simple solutions, which are these like cognitive services, which is like, hey, here's some data. I'll just be smart and just do stuff for yeah. you. Yeah. But is that really AI and machine learning? A little bit? Totally. All, all that mucking around in code is so not AI. AI is just <laughs> let the machine learn. I shouldn't be doing any programming here. You know, <laughs> let, the, let the college professors do that and their poor students. <laughs> well, and, and, and that was always my fear of getting into any AI or machine learning. So I was like, I'm not a data scientist. Do I need to be a data scientist? I'm just a poor, lonely mobile developer. See, I'm pretending to be a data scientist. I got a book. I read it. I, bought, I read the cross book and I feel like I'm a specialist now and I should be applying my trade to every field. Um, but the reality is I haven't been able to apply it to anything yet. <laughs> but I do have one cool feature, I think, coming up where I'll finally have an ML feature in one of my apps. Ooh. But I don't want to talk about it because I'll jinx it and it'll never happen. <laughs> well, so that's why we brought an expert on uh, right. this week. I'm super excited. You know, and we got to, to invite people on. First time ever for Merge Conflict. <laughs> like, Paige was our first pick. Hey, yeah. I feel so special. That's totally. Awesome. <laughs> we're, we're getting Paige on no matter what because... Paige, uh, cloud developer advocate uh, at Microsoft. Uh, more recent, right? About yes. A year now? Yeah, I just started with Microsoft towards the end of July last year. Perfect. Oh, so welcome. Right. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, in our AI and machine learning. Now, what's awesome about Paige is all the things. Uh, not only does she have 10 plus years of Python development, Frank's favorite way to program, <laughs> uh, four years of R tons of usage of Hadoop and Spark, all those things that when you see them, like when Lena's demo them or Paige's them, you're like, I don't, that sounds great. <laughs> um, what's really cool is that uh, her background in education is in geophysics, carbonate geology, and data analytics, which yeah. is crazy. Like way, way smarter than mm -hmm. me and Frank combined. I love I it. I don't believe Yeah, that. no, I believe so. No. Yeah. I have well, to ask 
the first obvious question. So are you a rich gambler now? Do you just spend <laughs> all your time in Vegas and you just laud it over us and no. this is your side gig? <laughs> no, not at all. I, I actually, um, so I feel always very uncomfortable in Vegas. Whenever the programming conferences happen, I just kind of go to the hotels. There's well. a great anecdote about um, a physics conference that happened in Vegas. And it was actually the worst, um, the worst weekend for that particular casino. Not because they lost a ton of money, uh-huh. but because the physicists didn't gamble. They were, just like, <laughs> they were just like, okay, we're going to try, you know, like once. And if they win, then they're like, okay, you know, I won 10 bucks. We're going to go. This was, you know, the odds say that that's mm-hmm. good for me. But so that's the physicists. What about the data scientists? <laughs> the, the data scientists would want to see kind of statistical models for how often, um, how often the casino stacks certain things. But it, it's always... Um, it's always placed so that the casino eventually wins, you yeah. know, the majority of the profits. Darn so, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, when, whenever I go, I go with a very set amount of money, like $200. Yeah. But when, when I go with Heather, she has that mathematical background. She's like, you know, you're just going to lose. Like, I'll buy yeah. scratch. She's like, you know, like, it literally tells you the odds on the back. Yeah. You, it tells you you're going to lose. Yeah. I can't help myself. I need to do it. You're but what if? For the fun. Yeah. yeah. But what, well, Paige, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Um, now, I probably did a terrible job of describing your background. Uh, oh, or was it amazing? It was, uh, in between? It was pretty dang good, I'm going to say. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, so my, my educational background is kind of atypical. Um, I did geophysics and applied math. Um, and my, I was always kind of of the impression, like, I'm going to go to grad school and be a planetary scientist. I'm going to be Lady Carl Sagan. Uh-huh. And, yeah. So my first two internships were both space sciences related on NASA projects, um, doing things with lunar ultraviolet. Uh, there was this project a while back that shot a rocket at the moon and then looked at the ejecta as it came up to see. The impact uh, one. They just yeah. flew it into the moon. That was yeah. such an interesting mission. Yeah, that was our team. So. <laughs> awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Did yeah. it explode the way you wanted it to? It, it absolutely did. Exa- it did exactly what it was supposed to. It made a big boom. And then the ejecta flew out and we were able to analyze the spectra and saw that there was trace water ice in that permanently shaded region oh i just assume there's a military moon base (laughs) i'm glad you've confirmed it awesome now let me ask you a question that's most important to all of our listeners and especially me how do you feel about pluto recently being reclassified as a dwarf planet so i i was always very emotionally attached to pluto which Uh means that um which means that you know it's kind of heart-wrenching to have it to have it taken out but it never really made sense to have it as a planet. Like its orbit was very eccentric. It didn't follow the same path as the rest of the planets. It was much, much smaller. It's kind of like this big, big ball of ice sort of thing. And there were a lot of other um, kind of very similar to Pluto artifacts out in the extent of the solar system. They were actually larger. So it's yeah. like, okay, if Pluto gets to be a planet, why is he so special? So, <laughs> yeah. Was it Mike Brown that did that? Is that the right name? Yeah. And he's looking for planet... 10 x something, something right now there. right you yeah. think he's gonna find it i i hope so like okay. I, I unfortunately i haven't been able to spend as much time as i would love to spend um still in the space sciences realm yeah. but it's it's <laughs> like near and dear to my heart i think every kid wants to be an astronaut when yeah. they grow up well all that time in vegas is <laughs> yeah when i when i when i was looking at it because i was doing this geocaching thing recently you're trying to collect all the planets and i was like oh pluto's in there i was like that's my favorite planet as a yeah. kid it was my favorite <laughs> yeah. planet and then i recently recently saw on Twitter 
some like I don't know if it was real imagery or if it was like this is what Pluto really looks like. With the heart. Yeah, it was like <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, I was like it was beautiful. I was like this is the planet that I know and love. I want to move yeah. there. It might be I a mean, little cold. Yeah. They show us Mercury, and Mercury is just this brown or gray thing sitting out there. That's so boring. Yeah. 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 Pluto's way more interesting. Yeah. Should we keep on talking about planets? I mean, or? I could probably talk about Pluto <laughs> for most of the day, to be honest. Uh, so, but so actually, the the machine learning and AI implications for space sciences have been pretty interesting. So specifically around being able to detect exoplanets. Okay, oh, yeah. I have the app for this. <laughs> So, so d- define define exoplanet for those that may be listening that may not know what that is. <laughs> so so um, one of the you know going back to Carl Sagan, one of the best, um, one of the well one of the coolest uses of NASA's time is trying to find other worlds that are similar to Earth that mm-hmm. might be potentially habitable. Um, and exoplanets are really, really diff- – or they were historically very difficult to find because you couldn't see them directly. It's not like you could point a telescope and be like, oh, hey, yeah, like 20 <laughs> solar systems over there. Totally see a thing. Looks like Earth. It's got some uh, trees. Yeah, absolutely. People's walking around. I see uh, a space needle. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, so, so the way that you would always observe exoplanets is kind of indirectly. Like you would mm. observe a star and you would see this periodic pulsation, this change in brightness. And that's because a planet was transiting in front of your field of view. So, like, the, it's not that the star would change brightness. It's just that something was in between you and the star. And that's how oh. you would be able to observe, like, oh, hey, I think that's a planet. Um, or, or you could see, like, small gravitational, um, gravitational uh, nuances that uh, would indicate that there was a, a, large, um, a large orbiting mass uh, transiting around. But, it's, but the thing is about the, the larger masses, you know, they're, they're a little bit um, less likely to be Earth-like. Uh, so, so they aren't they aren't really the the best thing that we would want to use if we were going to go and you know like we use up all the resources on this guy and we're like okay let's go over there. We're in a Wally situation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Perfect. And um, so so machine learning uh, since this this task has historically been very difficult, right? Like you can imagine if you were a human being that was just sitting there yeah. like I'm going to look for stars that look slightly less bright today. Yeah, um, or just as an engineer, I'm thinking the signal-to-noise problem because you're such a distance, you must be picking up all sorts yeah. of noise. And think about how many stars <laughs> there are in the universe, right? right? Like, so which ones are you going to look at? And then also having to think about, okay, well, which universes have the kind of chemical constituent parts that would be, you know, creating a rocky planet such as Earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So machine learning is actually able to scan through all of this data, um, since a lot of uh, the exoplanets have been classified already, um, that so we we know what constitutes an exoplanet in the data. Um, we just kind of feed that data and the classifications to a neural network, and it automatically cycles through every single bit of sensor data that we have in NASA. So if Brilliant. you look at the uptick of exoplanet um, exoplanet identification recently, it's like. Oh yeah, yeah, linear, you linear up, you go, uh-huh. yeah, uh. but, yeah, and that's mostly through techniques in neural networks and machine learning. I think the one lesson I've learned with neural networks is the more data you have, the happier they are. <laughs> so it feels like we must have gotten to a threshold where we we're finally able to train the neural networks. Yeah. Is that accurate? Or so, so um, a threshold, but then also we have great tooling like TensorFlow. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and the and being able to being able to construct kind of these very complex 
um, deep neural networks using all of the the back propagation and everything, and mm-hmm. it's it's kind of, it's kind of wonderful. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, and and the the data the data thing is spot on. Like the more classified data you have, you know, mm-hmm. the more pictures of dogs that you know are dogs or the pictures of cats that you know yeah. are cats like the better off your algorithms are going to be you know, one thing that frank and i often talked about even in that is is when we were i was trying to train just a custom vision ai type yep. model and mm-hmm. in our xamarin booth or, or at build we had a, an app where you could go around and scan things and they were having some i think everyone was kind of new to like how do i do this yeah i uploaded yeah. a bunch of photos and like that should that's that's machine learning right yeah. <laughs> but i think frank was trying to explain to me how important it is to have the not part of it like like there's the scott or not but like the not is almost is that more important than the is it's so so they're both very very important to have and then also different um kind of different perspectives on those two categories as well so like you can't just have like five pictures of for the scott or not demo that we had you can't (laughs) just have like five pictures of scott guthrie smiling and and say like oh well that obviously should recognize him now like it's like whenever you do the facial recognition on your laptop, you kind of have to move around. Mm-hmm. It suggests like, hey, get some different lighting so that uh-huh. they understand the shadows. Like it's it's kind of a, your, your machine learning algorithm's only going to be as good as your data. And if your algorithm's only ever seen a person in a single perspective under one kind of lighting, then that's all it's gonna know about <laughs> that person. Well, how can you machine learn the unknown, such as these exoplanets? Because, again, I, I'm going to talk about space the entire time. Because, yeah. you know, my favorite thing to do in the city is to go out on the planetarium and go to... We the, have a the, planetarium? Yeah, inside of the Science Center, Pacific <laughs> Science Center. You can go to the Stars Tonight, which is oh, a show that's... that's so cool. They give you a little map, and they have all the constellations Let's up go. there. Let's go. Whenever, whenever Heather and I travel, she tries to go to... Yeah. And find telescopes that we can I go. I do, too. Yeah, we were in Hawaii, yeah. and, like, we could see... I think it was Mars, maybe, or was recently there was maybe Saturn. We saw some... It was really, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. So classic best girlfriend in the world. Um, yeah. uh, so, I mean, so in that aspect, how do, how do, if we don't know, how do you even start to machine learn that? Right. So, so the, the exoplanet situation is interesting because we have identified some exoplanets, right? Mm. Like the NASA has um, kind of like they had, you know, several hundred, maybe even thousand or um, exoplanets identified that over decades you know that they were they were they were able to pluck out so they were able to say like oh well here are some coordinates and some characteristics of that sample Mm -hmm. um so they just kind of threw all of the information that they knew about that particular exoplanet and its classification so exoplanet you Mm -hmm. know that that sort of or star with an exoplanet rather got it um and then uh kind of threw in all of the rest of the stars that they didn't know if they had exoplanets and it's like, okay, here are the ones that you want to take a look at. Like these, these are the ones that probably do. And then they kind of reduced the sample space that they would need to um, that they would need to observe. And they've been much, much more successful at finding them since then. If that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, to yeah. me. And I have to imagine that they have to have so many images and feeds. I mean, the Hubble was up there forever. And yeah. it's like, just it's just taking photos nonstop. Right? These aren't Hubble, right? It was another spacecraft. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. And it's, then they just launched another yeah. one. Is that right? They're, they're, well, it's, I, I, or, don't, I don't have encyclopedic knowledge. <laughs> Unfortunately, sorry, yeah. it's, it's, but, it's, but there are, yeah. you are completely right. There are a ton of, there are a ton of, of spacecraft um, analyzing pretty much every part of the solar system. Like the two projects that I worked on before, um, I was using uh, Solstice 2, which was on the Solar Dynamics Observatory. And then the other one was um, 
the LAMP system, the Lyman Alpha mapping system, was the project um, on LRO, which is the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So you literally stared into the sun for a while. Yeah, and it's it was the coolest <laughs> it was the coolest thing. So you have a spacecraft that's looking at the sun and analyzing the UV from it. So you have this spectrometer with this little tiny thing that's that's um, like this little tiny aperture opening that's that's getting in um, the sunlight. But then whenever the anything passes into its field of view, you know, it doesn't need to be looking at the sun anymore. So it turns around and it does a stellar calibration. So it looks at the brightness nice. of the stars over there. It opens its aperture um, because obviously it's not getting as much um, it's not getting mm-hmm. as much light as it would be if it was looking at the sun. And it uses all of the brightness readings from those stars to say like, oh, OK, I'm still functioning the way I'm supposed to be. But the, my project was, um, so whenever it was doing this stellar calibration, the moon would sometimes pass into its field of view. And that obviously, like, threw off readings. Yeah. yeah. So my job, whenever I showed up at the, um, whenever I showed up in Boulder, um, they gave me a whole bunch of data. And they were like, okay, there's all these statistical anomalies. Find out why. Uh-huh. Um, and, and then uh, the project was to, to get a kind of an albedo measure of all of the moon passing into the field of view. So that's data science, actually. <laughs> you know, like, look, look, at sti- look at statistical anomalies, um, get some sort of understanding of a problem space, um, form a hypothesis. Yeah, that's, that's all data science, large-scale data analysis. <laughs> so, after, so after staring at the sun I mean, for years. Yeah, <laughs> or not years. Like. Just up there. You're like, oh, look at that sun. Look at that day. Look at that big old star. So w- what led you to the space where you're at now? And like, what's your day-to-day? Before we get into like the crazy... Like, I Again, I can literally just talk about I space yeah. all the time. I have a friend that... Second podcast. Yeah, <laughs> second, yeah bonus episode. Yeah. More space I, with Paige. My, my, my mentee from college, she's actually getting her PhD at Brown right now in planetary science. Nice. So we could bring her on. Adina uh-huh. would love yeah. to talk about space. This I think sounding like an whole, opportunity. <laughs> I think that this is a whole podcast in itself, space travel with Paige. Uh-huh. Honestly, it would be amazing. <laughs> so, so what actually brought you to... You have this big back background and doing Python and R machine learning and all, staring at the sun forever. Mm-hmm. So what led you to to Microsoft and this cloud role? And like, what do you what do you do now? Like, what's your passions now? And what's your focus? Gotcha. So, so I started programming when I was very young. My mom rescued an Apple II from being thrown away. Um, so somebody, I, I grew up in a very small town um, without even a library. Uh, but a lot of people loved to um, retire there from the, the Metroplex in Texas. Oh, nice, yeah. Um, so, so they would come and they would retire. And then, uh, you know, as, as they would go into a nursing home and had to downsize or, or whatever. But they, um, one of these people donated an Apple II to the school system um, in addition to a lot of software and lots of hard disks or uh, floppy disks with uh, with information that I probably should not have seen because they were an accountant. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so we rescued the Apple II. I started programming, and it was always kind of the impression of my family, like, now, Paige, you can't do this programming thing. That's never going to make you any money. Mm. Really? Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so I always uh, I did that. I got a student job when I was in school um, making GIS maps. And the application ArcGIS would always crash um, whenever you fed in a whole bunch of data. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to keep my job, I had to do everything in Python scripts. So oh, so that was that was kind of the so tool. You had this big expensive piece of software, but you wrote Python scripts instead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hacker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 it was just it's just kind of been like the so. Python was just kind of a, a tool to use to to analyze data to um, to 
kind of solve a problem and to make sure I had a job still. Uh, I, I've always loved math and physics, so geophysics was was a, a nice um, a nice settlement. I went to college wanting to do computational neuroscience, but we didn't have a program for that. Okay, um, Earth science, space, the sun, yeah. neuroscience, but it could, um, the ocean. It, have you done anything with the ocean? So, <laughs> Is there so anything Paige hasn't done? No, right. no, no. <laughs> It, so carbon age geology, though, actually is the study of corals. Perfect. Yeah. And, and it's, <laughs> but, but, but yeah. So, so, but, but it, it fits kind of because computational neuroscience. I was, I was really interested in the fMRI piece. Um, so, like doing doing these scans of the brain and having these three D images to tell us what's happening. Geophysics is kind of the same way. You do like three dimensional modeling of the subsurface, mm. so you end up looking. You end up with very, very similar structures. They even use the same data transfer format. Wow. Um, and and it's even kind of the same the same idea, right? Like you you making an fMRI of the brain. You obviously don't want to be invasive. You don't want to like drill a hole into somebody's yeah. head. And and the earth space, it's like often it's very expensive to drill a hole. Yeah. And, that, so. and you don't want to disrupt. <laughs> Like the entire coral reef, if you need yeah. to go like underwater and yeah. you, or like hit the, a high pressure zone. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. So this seems like a field ripe for ML. Is uh, has has it been changed by machine learning? Is it still growing in that field? So, or? so it has been changed slightly. Um, okay. There's still a ton of room for growth, and I cannot wait until kind of the oil industry and and the earth science space as a whole sees the light. Like especially mm. in the climate research side, I think there there are a ton of opportunities there. Um, one of my first machine learning projects, actually, because if in geology, a lot of people get PhDs from counting things, um, okay. like, like you, you count things and then you write a paper about it and you're like, oh man, isn't it great? How many of these things I counted? It means this, um, Look how high I counted funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so there is this one instance, um, where, uh, you have this, this coral reef system and it's almost like a fractal, like lots of these little smaller, um, smaller environments within it, and they have a variety of shapes. So some are parallelograms, some are like more circular, and but they're but they're definitely shapes, and you can see them in the satellite imagery, and they're thousands. Nice. So people literally get PhDs by counting those things. <laughs> and my first machine learning project was just like, well, crap, I'm going to count those things. Like I am going to just look at the satellite image and automatically pick out each of these little pinpoint things and classify them the way that they should be. And that worked? You were it, identifying and counting? It, it's identifying and counting because there were only like three or four different configurations mm. and they were they were pretty easy to make out. Um, but but yeah, so it worked with about awesome. 95% accuracy. This was, I could probably get it better now. Um, but I showed it to my advisor and his advice was basically just like, yeah, don't tell anybody about that. <laughs> so I just want to put that in perspective. When an idiot like me starts to do neural networks and you throw some terrible data at it, they usually come out 60 70% accurate. Then you spend a week at it, you really refine your data, and it gets up to about 80% accurate. <laughs> you yeah. really know, need to know what you're doing to break into the 90s and especially the high 90s. You, yeah. That's where the knowledge yeah. plays. Yeah, but it, it really helped, too, that the satellite imagery I was using was so high definition, mm. right? And, and it was also um, really easy to pick out the structures within, um, within the larger satellite image because they were bright white. Um, and nice. like against a dark, dark blue background. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, some ideal scenario there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>
Let's take a quick break from all the space travel and machine learning to thank our amazing sponsor this week, MFractor. If you're using Visual Studio for Mac, you need MFractor. Regardless if you're just building a C-sharp application, Xamarin Android, or Xamarin Forms, MFractor has everything that you need to be super productive with amazing refactoring, but also awesome tools and IntelliSense. They have some amazing features that I love. I write a lot of Xamarin Forms applications and a lot of XAML. From my XAML, I can automatically generate my view model and all of my public properties for getters and setters. I can go ahead and easily implement converters and it'll write all the code for me or effects or even custom renderers. I love all the little code snippets and little code actions that automatically do things for me. I can right click on a view model and go right into the code or right on a bindable property and it'll take me right to it by right clicking with a quick code action. Now what's really cool is that there's a bunch of other great tools for any application, such as image importing and icon generation, or better yet, localization and organization of your ResX files. So you need MFractor and here's where you go to get it. Go to mfractor.com, that's it. And for all of our listeners, you can get 10% off the pro license if you decide to upgrade from the free light edition by using coupon code merge-conflict at checkout. Just head to mfractor.com to learn more. And thanks to mfractor for sponsoring this episode of Merge Conflict. Now on with the show. Yeah. Is it is it really that we always, I don't know, I always like hearing these things that like, oh, everyone can use AI, everyone can use machine learning. Mm -hmm. But again, I kind of think back to like, I'm just creating this mobile app that does like, you know, scores or whatever, you know, <laughs> but is it, is it truly that every industry can actually like apply? Cause it's, it's interesting that I would have never thought, I, I had to assume that maybe NASA was using stuff, but I would have never thought of, oh, like doing research on the coral reefs could like, we could apply Caliburton. this type of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like what is the breadth of of where this stuff can go. So, so I think that it literally is every single industry. And I also, um, I love the, I love you saying that you were using kind of the, the cognitive services approach because most of the tasks are very similar, mm -hmm. right? Like being um, the object detection API that we just announced this week. Um, you know, a lot of people have a use case where they're like, I want to find BB-8 and, yeah. you know, another Star Wars, yeah. you know, or BB-8 versus the cute little black thing that I always, I always forget, the, the little black droid. The that, mouse, uh, uh, the mouse bot, yeah. Yeah, well, no, the mouse bot is like the rectangular yeah. one. Oh, it's the one? one that looks like BB-8, except it's black. Oh, the and, military BB-8. Yeah, we call yeah. him, okay. we call him BB-8. Oh, I see what you did yeah, there. he's a hater. He's oh, a hater on BB-8. BB-8. BB I think he's, uh... I'm going to look it up, Han. I'll come all the way back to it. Excellent. They, so you want to recognize BB-8. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and so, so that's a very typical use case. And being able to recognize specific people, that's a very typical use case. Being able to spot anomalies in time series data, that's a very, yeah. that's a very common use case. It's just when you get into these very specialized, um, these very specialized projects that it gets to be a little bit, um, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more demanding and you need to probably architect your own neural network systems. Mm -hmm. But I think it would be rad to have data scientists be able to package up their model into containerized distances yes. and deploy them as REST APIs and have a model marketplace yes. where people can just be like, hey, come buy page cognitive service number two. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, like... That would be like, you know, learn how much fertilizer you need to use in rose gardening in Arizona yeah. in July. Like that's. And as an app developer, that's what I want. I mean, I really enjoy the Python hacking. I do. Mm -hmm. Cross is great. Yeah. But at the same time, if I have a task, I just want to get the task done. Yep. So I really appreciate that high level 
um, approach. We've been talking a lot about pattern recognition. Have you gotten at all into reinforcement learning, that field? So a little bit. Right now, the the field that I'm most excited about, I think, are um, our adversarial networks. Nice, yeah. yeah. So the there's this team at Google called Clever Hans. Um, or it used to it used to be at Google. Maybe it's not quite as much because I just found out that Ian Goodfellow left for OpenAI. Mm. Okay. Um, but apparently that happened a while back. But he was kind of the the spearheader behind the Clever Hand stuff. Um, adversarial networks are uh, basically getting two neural networks to fight each other to find the best solution. Mm. Um, and then it also uh, you can also have adversarial machine learning approaches where like changing one pixel in an image. Um, can give you wildly different classification, and that's wh- which is kind of the the security aspect yeah. of of machine learning, right? It's it's been fascinating what people have pulled off with that. Even, yeah. Uh, what was the one I saw? What they turned a cat into a dog, or was it a horse into a dog? There's some famous ones out yeah. there. Yeah, and the turtle that looks like a gun. Yeah, and then also like sticking one red pixel in an image. Um, and have it uh, cl- go from classifying a cat to a boat. And then there's <laughs> another one where, um, so you could take a, s- imagine if you had a company um, like or military uh, yeah. military group that was looking at satellite images and trying to find missile locations. Right. Um, so they had classified all of those. And if you just introduce some random noise into that image, suddenly it's like, oh, hey, no missile location. It's a cat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or it's like, oh, it, uh, it's actually a church, but introduce random noise. Oh, hey, that's a missile location. I saw a paper on this where they took that same technique that they were using to fool the neural networks to try to fool humans. So they would distort the image of the dog to make it look like a cat to a human, too. Yeah. So this opens up a whole new realm for Photoshopping things yeah. and changing reality. I, with all this ML stuff, I don't know if we can even trust the future. Like, yeah. any media is compromised yeah. at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, when I think about it, well, there's, there's two parts of it, of being able to do things like that. But if we are at 95% or 96% accuracy of that, but if some noise can just get in there and distort it, <laughs> when we have the result... Like, what do we do with that result? Like, I think that's the thing is like, all right, we're all about this machine learning and AI. And we're putting all this data in it. And then we get a result. War games. Uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> it, is it like, how trustworthy is that result? And then what yeah. is what do you do with that result? Right. So um, the, the typical output that you get from any algorithm would be a classification if it's a classification task. So like dog, 95% confident or uh, uh, reef, 85% confident, something like that. Um, so you have to understand that, okay, well, it's, it's that percentage confidence. Um, there's still a small chance that that is not the case. And also what's going to happen over time, right? Like how do you retrain your algorithm on new data to make sure that it's still being accurate? Mm-hmm. Because a cat probably is going to look like a cat next year. Um, but if you're doing sales for your business and your business grows, right, or, or say your, your customer base changes, how are you going to incorporate that into your model to be still effective? So, so machine learning is not going to get rid of the human race and, and employees no. and it's going to no. replace us. <laughs> you, 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 it seems as if you still need people to, to be filtering that data, putting more data in and retraining it to just constantly yep. improve and, yeah. and analyze the data. Yep. You'll even see it in cognitive services, though. Mm-hmm. It'll sometimes say, this image is 85%, this one 65%. Well, yeah. 
are those really different? At this, yeah. like, there's a human decision to be made at yeah. some point. It's, Absolutely. Can we train a neural network to make that decision? Yeah. Oh my! Neural networks on top of neural networks. We got neural networks on neural networks. Oh, also, BB9E is who we were looking for. Nine E. The obviously, advanced. it's very E for evil. Uh, could be. I love it. Yeah. Actually, if you follow BB8 on Twitter, they often have uh, Twitter wars between BB9E and BB8. So, oh, that's fun not fact: good excellent. Uh, often BB8 will tweet out photos of of BB8 playing with like chickens and stuff like that. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty adorable. Anyways, that's that's uh, You're sidebar. You're on a whole different Twitter <laughs> sidebar. That's what. That's not what people use Twitter for. Oh, oh okay. Um, oh, that's interesting because I I feel as if often when we talk about like robots and machine learning and these things that seem so futuristic that are literally here today mm-hmm. that everyone has that fear of like oh like it's just gonna it's it's they're trying to replace my job but it doesn't mm-hmm. seem that way no it's if if anything i i kind of view ai as a way to augment human creativity right like anything that you can imagine suddenly you're able to create like right now um there there's research being done to say like if i wanted to give um, you know, if I wanted to just say a sentence, like I want to see a pink sky with a oh, blue yeah. ocean and 12 fish and six birds, mm-hmm. like a neural network would be able to draw that mm-hmm. as, you know, I like, love that. yeah. And, and think about what that means for people who are creating films, who are creating art, like being able to, to automatically bring whatever ideas that they have into their brain immediately to life. Think about how quickly their iterative process can be. Like, are you a Westworld person? I am a Westworld. Uh, person. How, how Westworld? Where are we from, at? From a, from a, from a, not all the bad stuff in Westworld, but from a. There's a lot of bad stuff in Westworld. <laughs> but, but from the main architecture of of creating that, like, is there a part where machine learning and AI gets to that state where there is that uncanny? We even talked about in the keynote there at Bill. They were even talking about the uncanny valley a little bit, but like, is that is that like a possibility where like machines are then learning? from themselves and we're inputting data from their experiences. This is a very left positive <laughs> like, You can handle that, right? <laughs> if you don't want to handle that, you can yeah. just say, what did you think about <laughs> Actually, I'm going to change the question. Yeah. What do you think about chatbots these days, mm. the current chat state bots. of the art? <laughs> so so chatbots are, I think that a couple of years ago, there was this big, you know, there was a lot of hype around chatbots. Like, oh, man, this is going to replace all the yeah. IT people. Like, <laughs> right. It's going to be awesome. You just point it at an FAQ and off it goes. Mm. Um, so I think that there have been a lot of really interesting recent advances with chatbots, particularly around acting um, or, or integrating with existing applications, especially at Microsoft. So being mm-hmm. able to say like, oh, yes, schedule a meeting with Nancy at five or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, or being able to integrate with Alexa or, or something mm-hmm. of that nature. Um, but, but my new best friend is not going to be a chatbot. No. 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 Unfortunately, <laughs> her is not here yet. Like, that was the movie, right? Yeah. 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 Scarlet Joe. Was her. I don't even need that. I just need Alexa to care a little bit more about me. <laughs> I, I, I said the word. I'm sorry. It's, it's right. I, I think Alexa is now at the point. The Amazon Echo is now at the point where perhaps the voice recognition is there. Well, when I have a conversation with Google at home, I'm a Google person, and I, I always feel it's very one-sided. Mm-hmm. And and when I think of bots, a lot of people are thinking of the, the bots in the apps, but mm-hmm. I think of the voice aspect of it. When yeah. we talk naturally, like we're having a conversation here and we're laughing or that, but when... I always thought it was really interesting that when I ask Google to play music, Google will say, would you like to play 
Cardi B from Google Play Music. Or like now now playing Cardi B, I'm always <laughs> listening to Cardi B. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, from Google Play Music, I'm like, you, but you could have just started playing the music. There was like, okay. there's, it yeah. seems as if it's running a script. It's it's running yeah. a script, and then it's a, it's a, almost as if it's we need to be assured. Like as humans, <laughs> are we not ready for that step of like we need that assurance in this chatbot world of of yeah. it? Like I I personally think that it would be awesome to have a chatbot um, that just like so. The human, um, the human component of conversation is that it's always spontaneous and it's unpredictable, mm. right? And we just, we just talked, like, if you wanted to do actual machine learning, it's not going to be unpredictable because you're, it's only going to be as good as the data that you've historically trained it on. Like, machine learning, <laughs> machine learning can't be creative. You know, it can't, it can't yeah. make any sort of decisions that it hasn't seen before. Mm. Interesting. So, so I think that we're, we're not really at a place where we can have that component of chatbots unless you know you sample across the entire um all of all of the conversations that have ever yeah. happened and doesn't it, facebook have that data uh, <laughs> i just assumed dun, dun, dun. Uh, next time <laughs> <laughs> next time when we cover gdpr for uh, all right so before we get out of here Paige, uh yeah. we like to ask all of our guests uh, a, a really uh, intriguing question because <laughs> I think it's interesting because we learn a lot and we always learn some new things. I think our listeners do too. Mm -hmm. But what library or project do you think is not getting enough attention that you think it should be and, and why, why do you love it? Excellent. So there I have, I have one library and a related, a related organization that aren't, that aren't getting enough love. So there's a project that was recently started at Google about halfway through last year. It was publicized called Kubeflow. Um, which is uh, kind of machine learning at scale using Kubernetes and a variety of different frameworks. So it's not just TensorFlow, even though Kubeflow makes you think that it probably <laughs> does it. Um, but it's, it's TensorFlow, it's scikit-learn, it's, it's basically any machine learning framework that you would want. Um, and the, the thing that's going to happen, I think, is that as machine learning scales out and becomes integrated into more and more systems, you're going to be able to want to scale your training so if suddenly you get a whole bunch of additional user data, um, you want to be able to go from, you know, maybe one machine with these GPU requirements to a larger distributed system with those GPU requirements. And then also for the inferencing component, um, though I think serverless functions will help with that quite a bit as well. But Kubeflow, not getting nearly enough love. They recently had a great presentation at KubeCon. Um, I'm going to be talking about it at SciPy this summer. So, so highly recommend that, as well as the TFX paper that it's based on. So TFX is TensorFlow Extended. Um, it's kind of, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful paper. Again, released halfway through last year that goes through, okay, so great that you can train a system. Great that you can um, build an algorithm to do some sort of predictive task. What do you need to do to make sure that the data coming in is standardized so that your machine learning algorithm is going to still perform the way that it wants it to? So like if your sampling rate changes, how, are you, okay. how do you deal with that? If your resolution for your images changed, how do you deal with that? If you um, suddenly are getting bad input, data, how do you deal? And then also, how do you retrain it? Like what is the, what is the practice that you define as a business or a person to go back and add additional data to monitor for accuracy and then also to scale it out as needed? So, like, having the entire machine learning ecosystem built around these algorithms. It sounds like they're doing all the dirty stuff you don't want to do. Yeah, it's the best. It's the best. That's my, that's my favorite bit. The data bit and the scaling bit are my favorite. 
it makes uh, perfect sense. I'm, I'm just recently finally learned Kubernetes and what it's all about and why all these people are excited about it. So it yeah. makes perfect sense to, yeah, get the GPUs running on there and yeah. make it easy to make distributed. So that is super awesome. Yep. And especially if you're going about automating training, right? Like, like suddenly if you have all this additional data, um, like, do you really want it? it? And it used to take six minutes and now it takes six hours. Like, mm -hmm. is that really something? Um, so that's that. And then uh, NumFocus is the organization. And okay. this, is, this is a fantastic, fantastic group. They, um, they fund with developer time and also like grant writing expertise, uh, lots of different Python libraries for data science. So pandas, Jupyter notebooks, um, NumPy, SciPy, every, every tool that you use as a data scientist um, has been impacted by NumFocus. Awesome. And they do not nearly get enough love. So, so NumFocus is the organization and Kubeflow as the, as the project. Perfect. Yeah, I'll put yeah. all the links in the show notes so anyone that's interested can follow. Yep. I love it. See, these are things that yeah. I, I had no idea. And that's how we asked. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, Paige, thank you. World. Yeah, thank yep. you so much for coming on. Thank you. This was yeah. fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We did more it. More space talk too. Yeah, next lot, time. yeah more and more space talk. <laughs> Paige, where can people find you on the internet? Oh yes. So I am dynamic web page. Paige spelled like my name everywhere on the internet, literally, um, except for Last FM, where I still have my high school. Um, Twitter handle, which is profoundly page. So nice. I like yep. that. Yep. I like the new one. It's kind of hilarious. Every thank time you. I read it, it makes me smile. <laughs> well, Paige, thank you again for coming on. Thank you uh, so much. Frank, as always, you know us crushing it over here doing our, our live interviews. Um, this was probably, I just got to sit back and enjoy so much space travel. I love it. Um, <laughs> I it's, it's the things as a kid, like Paige, you were saying, yeah. like as a kid, you just like yeah. look up and you're like, I want to go up there. Yeah. Well, you can find us everywhere on the internet. We're at Merge Conflict FM on Twitter. Of course, you can go to MergeConflict.fm. That is our website where you can do all of the things. So just follow me at James Montemagno at Proclarum for Frank. And of course, contact, write us in, leave comments on the shows. And of course, subscribe on all of your favorite podcast applications. If you're using Apple Podcasts, we'd love if you would leave a review. If you're using Overcast, star, share it, uh, get out there. That's how more people learn about awesome space travel with Paige. So until next time, this has been Merge Conflict. I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.